and Tommy and me, and there was Anthony Stabile. How you doing? Frankie Carbone. And then there was Mo Black's brother, Fat Andy. And his guys, Frankie the Wop. Freddie No Nos. The following podcast is a Carolina Boys production. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Crime and Entertainment. I am your host, Hollywood Wade. Now, in that opener you just heard, that is from the famous movie Goodfellas, directed by Marty Scorsese. And in that little opening monologue there, you hear them mention a guy, they say, Mo Black's brother, Fat Andy. Now, Fat Andy was actually based on a real guy. His name was Anthony. They called him Fat Anthony Ruggiano Sr. And today... We have the pleasure of sitting down with his son, Anthony Ruggiano Jr. Now, Anthony was a former associate for the Gambino crime family. Now, for those of you that are not familiar with the mob and the ins and outs, the Gambino was probably at that time the biggest crime family in the world. It was run by Carlo Gambino, and then he later named Paul Castellano as his successor. And as we all know, John Gotti eventually took over for Paul after he had him whacked outside of Spark Steakhouse in New York and downtown Manhattan. Now, we're going to get into a little bit of that story in this as well, but it's going to kind of explain how Anthony Jr. came up in the life. Because, see, some people would say, you know, I don't know why somebody would choose that life. You know, I don't want somebody why get involved with these people. Well, the thing is, Anthony grew up around these people. You know, to him, hanging out with guys like Neil Della Croce and John Gotti and Paul Castellano, you know, that was normal. He hung out with Tommy D. Simone, the guy portrayed in the movie Goodfellas by uh, Joe Pesci. So this was normal for him. You know, this was a normal lifestyle hanging out with these guys. It's like, you know, the average person going to their aunt and uncle's house. These people just happen to be mobsters. So, you know, he grew up in what he considered to be a normal type family, although this particular family would lead him to do a couple of stints in prison. He would ultimately be charged with murder and eventually wind up cooperating with the United States government. So today we are going to sit down with former associate of the Gambino crime family, Anthony Ruggiano Jr. And allow him to give us a glimpse into his life in the mafia here on crime and entertainment. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to crime and entertainment. Now today we've got a very special guest that uh, we were glad to have come on the show I talked to him a couple weeks ago and we were able to line this out because he's a very busy guy. You might recognize him by the ABC show that just aired a few weeks ago, uh, which centered around Sammy Bull. Uh, what was it? Truth and Lies, The Last Gangster. That was the name of it. Yep. Yes, sir. Please welcome to Crime and Entertainment, Anthony Ruggiano Jr., former Gambino associate. How you doing, pal? I'm doing good. How are you? How's I'm, everything going? It's going good. It's going good. This Saturday morning here. How, how's the weather where you are? Oh, it's really, it's beautiful. Matter of fact, after you and I have finished, I'm headed up to the beach. All right. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Very Any, nice. Anytime that's your destination, I guess the weather's doing pretty good. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. All right. Well, to get into your story, um, I feel as though we have to talk a little bit about your father first you know, to get on to you because your father's what, you know, you and I have spoke before, uh, your father's what I consider to be a gangster's gangster, you know, especially around the New York area, you got guys names that just solidify what being a gangster was. And, you know, Neil Della Croce, Carlo Gambino, and your father, uh, fat Andy fits right into that mold. You know, he was a, he was a tough customer. Tell us a little bit about, you know, your father and growing up as fat Andy's son, and, and how he became involved in this life. Well, you know, his, uh, I have to go back to his early childhood because his father, my grandfather passed away when my father was only six years old in 1932. And at that time in East New York, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of mob guys in East New York. Um, when my father was a kid, murder Inc was, was involved in their happy Mayoni. Um, and it just so happened that his friends, his childhood friends, 
their fathers and uncles were all mobbed up. So he was in and out of their houses at an early age. So he was around that type of character at a very early age. And he had no father. So that was very impressionable. They took him under his wing, under their wing, and sort of they became his his uh, father figures. Um, so as growing up, then he started getting in trouble in his neighborhood. Uh, he got drafted during the war, but he went AWOL. He went to uh, Levensworth for a few years. Uh, so he was kind of a, 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 a little bit of a wild kid. And then um, when he got out of Levensworth, he was only home for six months. And then he got rearrested again. And he went back to Sing Sing. And in Sing Sing, there was a lot of a couple of wise guys there. Christy Ticker, who later on became the underboss of the Casey family. And they took a liking to him. They pulled him into the bakery. And, uh, you know, he worked with them in the bakery back in Sing Sing. But when he got out of Sing Sing, he was still young. He was in his very, very early 20s. And he hooked up with his partner, Tony Lee. And um, they started robbing poker games in Brooklyn and Queens. And they robbed this wise guy's poker game called Charlie Wagons. Um, mm-hmm. And he reached out to Albert Mayoni, who was Happy Mayoni's brother of Murder, Inc., and uh, asked him if he knew who this kid Andy was. And he said, yeah, he's Liberty, Frank Liberty's uh, brother, kid brother. That was my Uncle Frank. Uh, was my father's older brother. And he said, could you uh, get the money back? And he goes, no. He said, there's only two things you could do with this kid. Either you could kill him or give him a job. He, he's not going to listen. He's not going to give you the money back. He's not going to stop. So Charlie asked Albert to bring him to him to meet. And Charlie was a soldier at the time with the Mangano family, who later on became the Gambino family. And Albert Anastasia was the boss of that family at the time. It was in the 50s, in the, in the vet, like 1950. And uh, so Albert Mayoni brought my father to Charlie. And it so happened, Charlie took a liking to him and actually gave him a job as my father became Charlie's driver. And then uh, the story goes from my father that after a while of my father driving Charlie around, Charlie took my father outside one day and asked him if uh, they asked him to kill somebody, would he do it without asking any questions? And he said, yeah. And uh, my father said later on, um, they picked him up. He was lived. At, he still lived with his, my grandmother because uh, he just hadn't met my mother, but he still lived with my grandmother. And they picked him up at my grandmother's house. And uh, he got in the car with Charlie and another guy. And then he told me that he whispered in the guy's ear. And I didn't know what he meant at first. I said, what do you mean you whispered in the guy's ear? And he went like this with his finger, you know, like he shot him in the head. And uh, that was the first time he did anything like that for, for, for the mob. And then, um, you know, then he started doing more of them. And then um, Albert Anastasia took a liking to him. Albert Anastasia started calling him the kid. That was like a pet name for him. So now you had this Albert Anastasia, who was nicknamed was the high executioner because he was the boss of Murder, Inc. So my father started doing work for that family. And then in 1953, the books were closed because when the books are open, you could become made. But sometimes there's special cases and they make you when the books are closed. And in 1953, my father was 26. I just turned 26 years old. And uh, Albert uh, Anastasia straightened him out as a special case. And um, and there was a little bit of a, of a beef at the time. Um, the Genovese family, this guy, uh, uh, Tony DeSheik, he put in a, a, a little bit of a beef against my father because my father actually robbed his poker game <laughs> at the same time he robbed Charlie's. So that, because so you know your name goes around to get you got to get when you get proposed your name goes around and each family has an opportunity to, to say something so that so they put in a little bit of a stink and they had to sit down in Manhattan and the story goes through my father that um Albert Anastasia was there and Tony the Sheik told Albert Anastasia this kid's an animal he don't care he's a killer he's this he's that he robbed the poker games he's disrespectful and he was going on and on and on and Albert Anastasia my father said was just sitting there. And then when Tony the Sheik stopped talking, Albert Anastasia just told Tony the Sheik, well, who do you want me to straighten out, priests? <laughs> and like that was sort of like the end of the conversation. And then my father got straightened out right after that. And it's funny because my I came into play. My father always said that 1953 was the best year of his life because he became a made member of the mob and also a father because that's the same year I was born. So he became a father and a made member the same year. So, you know, so I, so when I was born, he was already uh, straightened out. He was already a soldier in, in that family. 
And then right after I was born, three years later, Albert Anastasia was assassinated. And then, um, yeah, you know, that, his, my father's regime did all the murders for Albert. And then Carlo Gambino took over and, uh, you know, that crew did all. And then they made Arneal, my father's captain, Della Croce. And then later on, Arneal Della Croce became the underboss. And my father and Arneal had a great relationship. You know, so when I was a kid coming into my 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 life, when I was a kid, like I always knew something was different, but I didn't really know what because I was a kid. I didn't understand. You know, I knew that, you know, he got treated differently when I, he took me with him. He got a lot of respect. People always stuck money in my pocket when he took me to the bar. You know, he, he always owned bars and restaurants. And we went to Italian restaurants. You know, he got catered to. You know, and and so I knew something was going on, like I said, but I didn't know what. Um, you know, uh, he used to tell me he worked in a dry cleaners. That when school wanted to know what he did for a living, and I knew that wasn't true, but I said it anyway to my teachers that he worked in a dry cleaners because he did own one or two of them with this fellow, uh, Pacey. You know, so I knew that he owned them, but I I knew he didn't work in them because he always left the house in suits and ties, and it was always men in and out of my house. Um, so I didn't find out about him being, uh, you know, in the mob until I branched off my block. Because, you know, in New York at the time, we all stood on our block. We played stickball and all that on our block. But when I was about 13, I branched off the block. I had met some kids in public school. Um, I met some kids in school and they were hanging out at a pizzeria on 101st Avenue. So I, I, I branched off my block. And I went to the pizzeria. And when I started hanging out on this corner, the older kids, when I went to the corner, they would I would hear them say, that's Fat Andy's son. That's Fat Andy's son. So Charlie Wagons, I knew. But, you know, and then so really, I found out who my father was through the older kids in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And then I started getting treated a little different. And I liked it. I liked the feeling. And at that point, my father knew I was on the corners. So he started taking me to all the wise guy clubs, introduced right. me to them. And that's the first time I met John Gotti. Um, Charlie Wagons had a club, the Bergen Hunt Fish Club in Ozone Park where we lived. Yep. And uh, my father took me there because now I was roaming around the neighborhood and he took me there and he told them, this is my son. If you see him, look out for him. You know, he didn't want me to get hurt if I did anything wrong. They didn't know who I was and, you know, vice versa for them to look out for me. So that was my first introduction to, to, to wise guys outside of my home. Now, and I don't want to gloss over this fact either. This picture behind me, I'm sure you recognize it. Yes. Um, Good fellas. Yep. Your father was actually uh, mentioned in Goodfellas in the scene where they're going around the restaurant and they're naming off all the people. You know, this is Pete the Killer and yada yada. Your father's name is dropped in there. How did that? Uh, w- did you know that was going to be in there when you seen it? Because I'm sure you've seen Goodfellas in the cinema. Uh, did you know that was going to be in there? No, no, it's funny because what happened was when the movie, first of all, I knew all the people in the movie. Right. I knew all the characters in the movie. You know, my father was very good friends with all of them, with Paulie Vario. I mean, I used to go in Paulie Vario's house in Canarsie when I was a little kid with my father, you know, so I knew all of them on a personal level. But I didn't know they were going to mention my father's name in the movie, but I knew he knew them all. Right. So I went to the movie theater with all my friends that day or that night, whatever it was. And I was I remember sitting in the row with all my friends and the movie started and they were panning. That was called the Bamboo Lounge. Right. It was in Kodasi. And they were and which I used to go to with my father and they were panning that 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 scene. And when they got to my father and they said, Fat Andy. Every one of my friends went, that's your father. Like in the whole theater heard it, you know, and I'm sitting there like, oh, shit. You know, so it was like a big surprise. And and my friends, and it was comical because everybody said it at the same time. And my daughter, it's a funny, because years and years later, I was in prison and my daughter was a young kid. And she, and for some reason, her and her cousins watched the movie on video. And when they said my father's name, her cousins all screamed, that's your grandfather. And my daughter didn't really know what was going on, you know? Um, yeah. So that was my, my, uh, my intro into Goodfellas, but, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, it was weird, you know, when I saw the movie, it was kind of strange because, you know, I had a personal relationship with all, with mostly every character in the movie, you know, I had a relationship with Tommy DeSimone, he used to take me out drinking with him. Jimmy Burke, I knew I used to hang out. You know, I actually dated Jimmy Burke's daughter, Kathy, oh. when we were teenagers. 
I was actually, I took her out on dates. I was very good friends with her, Kathy, his two sons, Jesse and Frank, who we named after Jesse James and Frank James. Um, <laughs> you know, um, so I had a relationship with Paulie Vario. Like I said, I used to go in and out of his house when I was a kid with my father. And actually years later, him and um, my father and Paulie Vario were in federal prison together in Missouri in the hospital in the federal. And I used to fly out to Missouri with Pete the Killer. And and uh, and Pete Defe- and and a lot of wise guys that were around Paulie Vario, so you know it, it was kind of special the movie because I actually knew them all on a personal level. Right. But it was a surprise when I heard my father's name being mentioned. Yeah, and the guy uh, Tommy D. Simone, who Joe Pesci portrayed, I mean, there was a he played that part great, but there was a noticeable appearance difference, I guess you could say, because Tommy was a big fucking guy. He was yeah. huge. Yeah, it was, he was tall. You know, he was very charismatic. He was a very, very good shop dresser. Went out a beautiful woman. Um, he, you know, when he walked in a room, you know, you knew he was in the room. You know, right. Joe Pesky, like you said, I mean, Joe Pesky won the Academy Award for it. You know, he was great in the movie, but definitely didn't look anything like, uh, like Tommy at all. You know, um, Tommy was a killer. Tommy was, a, you know, they were, they were vicious people. I mean, I always had a great time with him, you know, but he was a dangerous person. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic movie, uh, all the way around. One of my favorites. It's one of those movies where if I see it on, no matter what part it's at, if it's got, you know, the whole movie left or 10 minutes, I'm going to finish watching it. You know, it's just a great one. So coming in, you know, you decide you want to get into the life. Did your father try to deter you from that any, or was he kind of just accepting of the fact that, you know, this is the way it is? No. Well, what happened was, um, I got transferred from a Catholic school into a public school. And when I got into public school, you know, it was a different atmosphere. And I started, you know, when I was 13, I started smoking weed in the park and I started, I became a truant, you know, I started playing hooky and I was running around in the streets because now I knew I was fighting the son. I knew, I didn't know everything he was into. Like I didn't know about the violence. I didn't know about any of the killings yet or anything like that, but I knew he was in an organized crime and he was a wise guy. I started learning about the structure of the mob but when I was 16, I got suspended from high school. Um, I got in trouble and I got suspended and he was not happy. He wanted me. He didn't really want me in the street, but he didn't know. Like I said, he never had a father and he didn't really know how to reprimand me or correct me. And he would just come home at night and he would look at me and he would go in his bedroom and watch TV. And he wasn't even talking to me. So after a couple of weeks of giving me the silent treatment, I called up my uncle, his older brother, my uncle, Frank, who, him and I had a great relationship. He had no children. So I was like his son, my uncle Frank. He was like really good to me. And I called up my uncle, who was my father's older brother. And there was a big age difference between him and my father. And I said, listen, Uncle Frank, you got to come to the house. You don't want to talk to me. I got I got suspended from school. So my uncle Frank came over and we had to sit down in my kitchen. My uncle, my father and myself. And my uncle told my father, you know, he wants to go to work. He's like us. What are you going to do? So my father said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to go to work. So my father looked at me, he goes, you want to go to work? I'll get you in construction. I'll get you in the bricklayers union. So now back then, the bricklayers union was really big because a lot of things were built with bricks today, no more. But back then, that was a really top-notch job, uh, bricklayers. And I said, I don't want to be no bricklayer. He goes, well, what do you want to do? I said, I want to work for you. He goes, you want to work for me? And he And he just sat back and he looked at me. And then he went with his finger, he tapped on the table and he went, well, if you want to go to work for me, remember one thing, going to jail is all part of the fucking job. Mm-hmm. Now, here I am, I'm 16, getting ready to turn 17. Um, and the way I was raised and the people I was around, like, that was okay. You know, that was okay with me. It was normal. And I said, fine. You know, and the next day he took me to this club on Merrick Road in Long Island that this guy, Philly the Pimp Did He wasn't really a pimp. But that was his nickname, Philly the Pimp. And uh, he had a blackjack game in there, and I went to work. And that was my first illegal job. I worked in a blackjack game, and then it just progressed. Then I worked in a dice game, and then I worked in a number office. Then I started selling swag, which is stolen property. Then I started selling cigarettes that they were smuggling in from down south. And it just kept on rolling. And, you know, and, and then I started putting together my own little crew, bringing them around my father. 
And my father started taking me around to with him to uh, he took me to the Raven night. I met Arneil Delacroix for the first time. And then I became very, very good friends with Arneil, somebody because we were both around the same age. And him and I got very tight. I met, you know, I got very close to his daughter, Tony, Arneil's daughter. And then it was just like one big family. And I, you know, and, and I started working for him and I started making big money. You know, now it's the 70s, you know, uh, I'm going in and out of these clubs. I'm get, get taken to the Copacabana, you know, and I'm just lost. I'm, I'm in it. And it's it was exciting. And then I started getting arrested and, you know, and then one thing led to another. And then and then I went to prison for the first time. So, you know, a lot it's, it's interesting to me that a lot of the things the mob did back in the day to make money are legal now. I mean, I mean, a lot of it. So you guys you know, ran numbers. And for what people don't know, that was basically a version of the lotto back then. That was very popular. A lot of people played it. You guys were loan sharks. You loaned out money for basically people that didn't have credit, you know, to go to the bank. And, you know, now you got cash advanced places on every corner. Um, you know, hell prostitution's legal in some places. Now weeds legal in some places. Now sports betting, all things that you guys were doing back then that they threw you in jail for is legal now. And we both know why it's because now the government can, can grab their piece up. How does that make you feel sitting here now that they tried to throw you in jail for no, years because of that? It's, it's crazy. Just the other night I was in Manhattan and I was having a conversation with some people and I told them that almost everything I went to prison for today is legal bookmaking, Shylocking, numbers. So the government took everything from us. And you're right, just because they want their end. You know, it makes me feel not angry, but like it's just, um, I don't know. It just, it's just, it's, 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 I don't think it's right. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, uh, but, uh, you know, they did it. And, and, you know, and we always knew eventually they were going to steal it from us. We always knew because they always, you know, talked about it and talked about it. So we knew, I knew it was coming eventually. And a lot of us knew it was coming eventually. But, you know, um, and they'll still put us in jail. You know, my father told me a long time ago, and I, I don't want to get political or anything, but my father told me a long time ago that the real mafia was the government. Absolutely. He said they wrote the book. My father is, was very funny. My father's theory on the founding, I'll tell you a little, my father told me what, my father's theory on the founding fathers were, he said, this is one day they were in this pub in Philadelphia, uh, Washington and, and Adams and Jefferson, and they were drinking. And one of them said to the other one, hey, why are we sending this English bastard all this money when we could keep it for ourselves? And they started a fucking revolution. <laughs> but that was his theory about the government. So, you know, it wasn't a surprise that they did it. But, uh, you know, like I wouldn't even know how to make a living today if I was in the street, because when I was a kid to be a bookmaker, you had to get apartments. And now all you got to do is get a website. Yeah. And the, and the software does everything for you. And it's funny because I go to New York now. I had a lot of we had a major number business in New York policy. And we had what they call number holes or number spots. And they were mostly bodegas and in the, in the back room. You would go in the back room and you would play the numbers, and like you said, it was a it was a it was a huge business. I mean, our number business used to gross ninety thousand, a hundred thousand a day in business. We didn't win that much money, right. but that was the gross of how many, how much volume we took in with the numbers. Um, and uh, you know, now you're going to a bodega and it's the same setup, but there's a lot on machine there. Yep, it's the same setup. With a lot of machines. Just so in the front. Just, all the government did was adopt everything from us. You want to make a bet now, you go on an app. And what it's doing is it's create, the government is creating gamblers. Yeah. People that would never bet with, there's people out there, legitimate people that would never bet with a guy like me. They would be scared. But now they're all on these apps. Yeah. You know, making all these $10 parlays and $20. And that's what the government wants. Yeah. $20 parlays, $10 parlays. But these people are losing four, five hundred a month. They don't even realize it. Yeah, they think because it's at ten dollars and it's got a fifteen leg parlay, you can you know get hit it for twenty, thirty grand. But by the yeah. time you you know the odds of hitting one of those are very, very low. We know we know how the game is played. It's, that's yeah, that's damn near impossible. Make, <laughs> they want you to make those kind of bets, them exotic bets. That's 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 what they want. Yeah, you know, like my son, my son, all my son's friends, they're all legitimate kids. 
You know, the, now they all live in New York. Now sports betting's legal in New York. They all downloaded the apps. They're all betting every day, basketball, football, you know, not, you know, they think it's a game and, you know, it's not a game, but, you know, but yet I went to jail for it. You know, yeah. uh, it's funny. And now today nobody's going to jail and I went to jail for right. And I make a joke of it. I go, look at that Robin Louis Vuitton stores. They're not, I said, I went to jail for writing a number. I got four years for writing a number. It's crazy. It's crazy, it's crazy how these world. times has changed. Now, Around about what time here do you get married? I think this is your first your first marriage. Right. So I got married. So I, I started dating a, a, a girl from a neighborhood, Alice Mayoni, who was Happy Mayoni from Murders Incorporated's niece. Right. Great niece. So our families knew each other. And I met her. I met her in a club, actually. I met her in some club that Jeannie Gotti owned called the Hunkamunka. No, excuse me. It was called the Mr. Colossus. It was on. It was in Howard Beach. It was, and uh, Jeannie Gotti owned it. It was a, like a first disco in my neighborhood. And I met her in there and I, you know, our families knew each other. Right. And I started dating her and, um, and we got married in 1977 in, in October in the La Mira on Ocean Parkway. There was a thousand people at my wedding. As a matter of fact, the first, if you, if you saw the movie, The Irishman, Buffalino, the guy that Joe Pesky played, he was the first person guest to come to my wedding that night. He pulled up with a limousine because he was very good friends with my father. So, uh, and I had a thousand people at my wedding. Paul Castellano was there. That's the first time I met Paul Castellano. And uh, yeah, we had a big wedding and uh, that was the first time I got married. I already had a case pending. Um, I was already, I went to trial. I got convicted of a, for um, uh, a liquor warehouse. We were, we were emptying out a liquor warehouse and I'd gotten arrested I was out on an appeal bill, so I got married in October of 77, and then in March of 78, I lost my appeal, and then I went to prison for the first time. Wow. Yeah, that was actually what I was getting at, was Buffalino being at your wedding and amongst the other yeah. names that you named. That's a powerful guest list you got there, my friend, yeah. for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Buffalino, you know, he was in, out of Pennsylvania, right. and every year, every Christmas time, you know, like a... Um, we would go to Pennsylvania. He would have a big Christmas party and we would go to his Christmas. Matter of fact, the last time I went to his Christmas party, Tony Bennett sang at the party. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, he had a lot of juice. Uh, yeah. And then he, he, and it was funny cause at my wedding, the guests haven't, didn't arrive yet. And I was standing up on the balcony looking outside and I saw a limousine pull up and he got out of the limousine with a few guys. And I ran back inside and I said, listen, but Felino just showed up because he's here already. And he was like the first person to come to my wedding. And then it's funny, Paul Castellano was there and he gave me a card with five $100 bills in it. And he signed it, love Paul Castellano. And my father ripped up the card and threw it out because, you know, it had his full name on it. Right. But we kept the money and he gave me $500. That was a lot of money in 1977. Yeah. So yeah, every, every family, I mean, I got envelopes from Chicago, from Buffalo, you know, Joe Tadera, he was the boss of Buffalo. He was good friends with my father. He sent me an envelope. Guys from Chicago sent me an envelope. My father knew a couple of guys in New Orleans. They were in the construction business. He used to meet them once in a while in Miami. They sent me envelopes. Yeah, it was just um, amazing. Okay. Now, you mentioned you're about to go away on your first uh, your first pinch here. Your father actually kind of gave you like a going away party, I guess, if you will. <laughs> Yeah. Or going so, inside uh, party, I guess you could call yeah. it. <laughs> so I, I, I got, to, you know, I lost my appeal and I got a date to surrender. So uh, a, two, a couple of days before the, the I had to surrender myself, um, my father, they had a going away party for me in Manhattan. So we, him and I got dressed up, suits and ties, and he took me to Manhattan. Actually, it was in the Ravenite, to tell you the truth. Yeah. That's true it was. It was in the Ravenite. And um, and I walked in and everybody was there. I mean, it was mobbed and had a big spread of food. It was like I was going off to Harvard. Like I like <laughs> you know, it was like it was like a big party. Like I'm going to fucking jail and, and you know, we're celebrating that I'm going to jail. Like it's crazy. You know, when I think you know, back then I loved it, but now when I sit here and I think about it, how crazy is that? Here I am. I'm 23 years old. I just got married and I'm going to jail and we're having a party like it's New Year's Eve, you know, and, and all the old men are there and they're patting me on the back and telling me how to behave in jail. If anybody mentions our names, don't talk to them till we check them out. A lot of people are going to want to be your friends because of your father. 
you know, and that school, Arneal was there. He was hugging me and kissing me, Arneal Delacroach. Right. You know, um, it was just, uh, yeah, we were there all day partying. And, uh, you know, and then I, you know, a few days later, I surrendered myself and, uh, and I went to prison for two and a half years. Well, you remember when your father told you it's part of the life. Yeah, part of the life, part of the job. You know, and I went to prison and uh, I did two and a half years. I got out in 80, you know, and I went right back to the street. My father at that time now was going back and forth to Florida from Miami to New York. We were bouncing back and forth. He had opened up an Italian restaurant in, uh, in North Miami. So we were going back and forth um, from New York to Florida and back. And then, um, uh, you know, that's when John started making his move, John Gotti. That was he what I was going to talk to you also. about. Yeah. yeah. So what's what was kind of the landscape? So Paul was still in power, but John Gotti started putting together his power move to take over. Well, they yeah. So what happened was um, they were all in the same regime. You know, my it's yeah. funny. You know, to backtrack for a minute, Charlie Wagons actually straightened out John Gotti and my father. He proposed both of them. Wow. Um, of course, John he proposed later on in the seventies. My father right. in the fifties, but he he he. They both got straightened out by the same guy, Charlie, um, and, and Jeannie Gotti and Angela. They all got straightened out by the same guy, by Charlie. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, my father was always good friends with John. You know, uh, I always knew John. John always looked out for me, always helped me from the day I met him. You know, and whenever I went to him for anything, he, he, he you know, helped me. Um, so... My father had got my father. Yeah, so they were, we were going back and forth. Every time my father was in New York, he would hang out with John. They would go out. You know, we'd go to Peter Lugas together. We'd go hang out at Richie Gotti's Cafe at night. So they had a really good relationship. Um, Paul was still the boss. And then, you know, a lot of guys were selling heroin on the down low. Mm-hmm. My father, he never was in the heroin business. He And I used to fight with him. Matter of fact, you know, it was crazy because we had a bar in Brooklyn. And guys used to bring my father like a kilo of heroin. Like say, here, Andy, you want to make some money? And he would go, I don't, I don't sell that. Like they would owe him a favor and they would offer him heroin. And he would say, I don't want that shit. And I used to tell him, take the fucking heroin. <laughs> and he used to tell me, he's telling me it's blood money. He considered, here he is, he's a killer. And he's telling me selling heroin was blood money. Yeah. So he I, he would tell the guy that offered him the heroin, no, take me to Murray's clothing store, buy me some suits and take me out for dinner. That was his payment, <laughs> whatever favor he did for them. But everybody else was selling junk, you know, on the down low. Oh, yeah. yeah. And as the story goes, so then my father, he was doing stuff in Florida and he was doing stuff in New York. Matter of fact, he had a gold store in New York, even. And getting back to the Goodfellows, he actually fenced all the jewelry from Lutunza. Uh-huh. Because he was good friends with them. They brought him the jewelry from Lutunza and he sold it with his partner, Tony Lee, through his gold store. He had a gold and silver exchange, my father, back in the day. So they were going back and forth. And then my father got arrested. My father got arrested. He got indicted in Florida. He got arrested and he, and, and he was fighting his case. And that's when, um, and that's when Paul Castellano got assassinated. Now you were out, you were on the street when that happened. Yeah. It's funny because I was home the day, the day it happened, I was home and I was sitting in my living room watching TV, you know, and um, a bulletin came on the TV, like, Paul Castellano was just gunned down in midtown Manhattan. I jumped up off the couch and I ran into the kitchen. I picked up the phone and I called up my father's partner, Tony Lee. And I go, they just clipped Paul. And he was like, so casual. Yeah, I know. Like, and I realized that he knew. Oh yeah. Cause he was very tight, which, and I, and when, the way he said it to me, like I hung up the phone, I go, Oh shit. They knew like, you know, <laughs> and then it's, I didn't put it all together yet, but you know, like, I knew something was up. Right. And then the next day I found out what happened because what happened was after about two or three days later, John became the boss. Right. And uh, was official. They, you know, he became the boss and they had meetings. Tony Lee's mother lived in Ozone Park and she had a house and they actually had meetings in her basement to put together the family. And Mm -hmm. then we all went to the Ravenite to pay John homage, I guess you could say. And then- A week or two later, he had this big Christmas party in uh, the, this place called the El Carib in Brooklyn. And that was like his coming out party as the boss. And we all went to this big Christmas party he had. So, uh, yeah, that's when he became the boss. And, you know, and then um, and my father was in prison. We went up to the prison, Tony Lee and I, and we told my father what happened. And he was impressed. 
He goes, is this the same John Gotti we know? You know, like he was, you know, and Tony goes, yeah, it's the same John Gotti we know, you know, because they knew him since he was a kid. And he was impressed with the whole hit, how it went down in Manhattan. And, yeah. Now, and, a lot of people, you know, that's not something that just happens every day, killing a boss like that, especially one of the Gambinos, because that's at that time, I'm sure probably the largest crime family and, you know, or at least one of them in the world. Did he get permission from the other families? I mean, I know that's kind of been debated throughout documentaries and series and movies where a lot of people were okay with it, but some weren't. I know that kind of started a war with the with the Chins family and, you know, Anthony Casso. Did do you know of any like did he actually seek permission to do that? Or did he kind of act on his own and you know, cause I know Paul wasn't exactly the most respected gangster when it came to street shit. He was really good at the business aspect. He wanted to turn more or less kind of get the mob in more legitimate businesses from what I know. Yeah. So my understanding of the whole thing, what Tony Lee told me and what I heard, you know, from other people. Um, so he didn't have permission from the commission. Okay. But what he did have, was the okay from two of the five, you know, his family, his, his, uh, the people he was conspiring with, like right. Sammy and Frankie DeChico, they were powerful captains yeah. in the Gambino families. So they were with him. Um, but as far as the other families go, like the, uh, the bananas, he had their okay because he was very tight with Joe Messina, right. who was their boss. They helped Joe Messina become the boss, mm-hmm. the Gambino family. So he had that family. And from what I understand, the Columbos, they sort of like said, okay. Okay. You know what I mean? But the Lucchese family and the Genovese family, they, I don't even think they knew what was going on. Because after John became the boss, you got to remember, that's when right after John became the boss, Franco DeChico got blown up. Yeah. Yep. Carl Bobby Burriello got killed in his driveway. Eddie Lino, who was a very, very good friend of mine, I used to go to Yankee games with him. Um, they killed him on the Bell Parkway, getting off the exit. And later on, we found out who killed them. The, the, the Genovese family blew Frankie DeChico up. Mm-hmm. The Lucchese family had had uh, Eddie Lino killed by the mob cops and Bobby Barriello killed. So yeah, that was retaliation for Paul because he, you know, of what John did. But eventually, John just got every, straightened everything out. The FBI even at one point had to notify John that the Genovese family were trying plotting to kill him. Right. They picked him up on a wiretap. Yeah. They had to actually notify him that he was, you know, they had a contract out on it. But eventually he straightened it all out. So, but people did lose their lives, unfortunately, after Paul got assassinated. Yeah, those mafia cops, that's what Louis Eppolito and Stephen yeah. Caracapa, I think they got a exactly. they have a show coming out about them pretty soon. So that'll be yeah. interesting to see how true that is. Yeah, and he's the one that played my father in Goodfellas. I, I, yeah, I was about to say that. I thought <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. him that played it. Yeah, because he had yeah, that little yeah, short yeah. stick. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Um, yeah. So going forward here, a little bit later, you get picked up a couple times. You had to do a number of stretches in prison, but unfortunately, during one of those stretches, your father passed away. Is that correct? Yeah. So I, like I said, I went to prison the first time in '78, and then um, in 1989, I got arrested again for in, in running my father's number office, the number ring. I got arrested in, in, in 89, in December of 89, and I got re-indicted again in March of, 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 of 90. I went to prison again in 91 for 16 months. I got out of prison. When I was in prison at that time, John Gotti had gotten arrested with Sammy right. and Frankie Lope when I was in prison in 91. They, they, and that's when Sammy started cooperating. Mm-hmm. So when I got out in 92, John was off the street. Right. I was home until in 96. I got indicted for bookmaking. Yeah, we go. I got indicted on a big bookmaking case. It was a big Queens and Brooklyn the organized crime task force indicted us The state indicted us. And I took a plea. I got a two to four for bookmaking. And while I was in, State prison, I got indicted in Broward County by the feds on another on a RICO case with Nikki Carraza, who was the acting boss for John Gotti at the time, mm-hmm. and a couple of wise guys and myself. And I got indicted in Miami. The marshals took me to extradited me to Miami, and I winded up getting 10 years. Wow. Yeah. So now I went, I finished my state time. I went to federal prison and right in March 19th of 19 in March. When I was in federal prison, my father uh, passed away. Um, he got my—he uh, passed away March nineteenth of ninety-nine, and um, 
He, yeah. And while I was in federal prison. And they wouldn't let you out to go to it. Well, no. What happened was the water first. It's like it's like a process of federal yeah. prison. It's much easier. It's so so first you have to apply to the to the warden. It's really for most inmates, it's up to the warden. But for organ right. for some reason, for organized yeah. crime inmates or high profile, it has to go through Washington. So the warden okayed it for me to go, but he had to get the okay from Washington, and somebody in Washington denied me. They okay. wouldn't let me go to his funeral, and I never went to his funeral. No, wow. I won't. So when you get out of that one, about how many years total have you done in prison? Total, I did about fourteen years total. That one, that one, I did eight years and three months. Okay, so at what point there's a there's a murder that is what is it your brother in law or what what was yeah, how my was brother in law your brother in law? Okay, so tell us a little bit about that. And how that went down and the repercussions of that. Cause when those charges come back, that's when things kind of, you know, you have to make some, some life changing decisions. Um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about that murder and how it took place. So my, um, my sister married this fellow named Frankie, who was a very dangerous person. He was, uh, he was a armored truck robber. Uh, he was a killer. He was just a dangerous kid. He was a very dangerous kid. And, he, for some reason, he started abusing my mother. Um, and on one evening, he he actually beat her up. He choked her. And my ex-wife, my first wife had to break it up because I was in, I was actually in treatment when it happened because I had a cocaine issue and I was addressing it. I was in treatment. And uh, when I got out of treatment, I went to my father's partner and I told him what was going on. He said he already knew. And I said, well, what are we going to do about it? He goes, we're going to kill him. And then we started planning to kill him. We started plotting to how we were going to do it. Uh, we sent word to John Gotti because we had to get a permission because it's crazy in the mob. You need permission to kill somebody, right. you know? Yeah. So we, we, uh, we sent the message through Jeannie Gotti to John Gotti, to his, who loved my mother. John loved my mother, like forget it. So he of course gave us the okay. And, um, then we started planning it. And then uh, we got him, we told him, we gave him some kind of bullshit story that we had a score for him. And I, I picked him up in the, at his house and I drove him to a club, a social club we had, and I walked him in and he was executed. All right. Now, when did the charges come down for that? So that happened in eight, in June, I believe of 88. Um, so I went to prison uh, the last time in 96, I got out in, I got out in August of 04. I got out in August of 04. And in um, June of 05, I uh, was sitting in front of my son's house on a bench. And I was sitting, leaning back with my eyes closed, taking the sun, waiting for my son to come home because we had to go to a wedding that night. And all of a sudden I hear, don't move, you mother effer, don't move. And I opened up my eyes and it was a gun right in my nose. And I was surrounded by FBI agents and they scooped me up off the bench and they handcuffed me and they threw me in a van and um, they charged me with that, with that homicide, with that murder. Wow. So that's kind of like uh, how he says it in Goodfellas, you knew it probably had to be the cops because if it had been a wise guy, you wouldn't have heard nothing. <laughs> yeah, I would have been dead, right? Yeah. When I, opened, I opened up my eyes, he was standing right in front of me like this, the FBI agent, FBI. And the guy behind me was screaming, FBI, FBI. <laughs> You have any weapons on you? Have, I remember they were screaming, "Do I? You have any weapons on you?" And 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 then they just yoked me off the bench and they cuffed me and they threw me into this van and they were screaming at me, "You fucking murderer! We got you now!" And they was, you know, all that BS. And then they took me and they charged me with a murder, with the murder with a Rico murder, bookmaking, a whole bunch of charges. Um, I got out. I was. I got out two weeks later on a three million dollar bond. I got out of prison with an ankle monitor and, uh, you know, and then, uh, you know, you know, at that point I was sort of tur turning, turned off with the life. You know, my father was dead at this point. Tony Lee was dead at this point. John Gotti was dead. So the three main guys in my life that looked out for me that I respected were gone. Mm -hmm. You know, John Gotti, my father who loved me more than anything, Tony Lee, his partner, I was like his son. The guy paid for my treatment out of his pocket. John Gotti did any did everything. But when I got out of treatment in 1988, John Gotti bought me a car. I had no car. Wow. He bought me a car. He gave me $2,000. I mean, the guy always looked out for me. So they were gone. 
I got my first legitimate job when I got out. I never had a legitimate job. I got my first legitimate job driving a truck. I loved it. I said, oh, my God, I should have done this 30 years ago. <laughs> you know, and then I got arrested, you know, and then I got arrested. And when I got arrested, um, nobody wanted to help. You know, nobody wanted to help. Um, I needed money for attorneys. I couldn't get any money. Um, you know, the, 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 the people, the class of people that were in the mob weren't the same as my father. My father would have done anything to help you. You know, they were sending me messages. You made your old bed, now sleep in it. And, that, and then my co-defendant was planning his, his, um, his, you know, alibi without me. Wow. And I'm going, what's going on here? So for some reason, I kept this FBI agent's card. He gave me this card, this guy, Jerry Conrad. He was an FBI agent. And I never kept their cards. I always used to throw them out. But for some reason... I kept his card. I don't know why. I guess it was divine intervention. But I couldn't make the call. I would pick up the phone and I would hang it up. I would pick up the phone. But it went against everything I believed in. It went against the fabric of my life. Oh, yeah. And I knew my father hated people that cooperated, you know. And I picked up the phone and I hung it up. I picked up the phone and I hung it up. I couldn't do it. One day I went by this guy's house. I had a pass to go. You know, I used to be able to leave my house for certain times of the day to go see my lawyer, to go to a dentist, whatever. So I got a pass that day to go out and I went to this knock around guy's house. I don't want to mention his name. He's still out there. And um, in his basement. And he says to me, why don't you call the government? I said, call the government? Are you fucking crazy? I can't do that. I can't do it. I said, I can't disrespect my father like that. You know, I was kind of even surprised he talked to me like that. He says, listen, he goes, you did everything your father ever asked you. You killed somebody for your father because he okayed my brother get killed. Right. He said you, you went to jail for your father. You respected your father when he was alive. Your father's dead. He said, you know, you, you, you can't disrespect the father. He's dead. But I still couldn't make the call. Then what happened was I had something legal going on and I needed. So I, I contacted an attorney that was good friends of my father's and myself, who was a mob attorney. And I contacted this attorney to, to help me. And they agreed. A couple of days later, I get a call from this attorney and they go, listen, I spoke to your co-defendant's attorneys and they don't want to help you. They don't want to give me the information I need because they're going to use it. It was for a motion for mm-hmm. me, but they had to use it at trial, but I could have used it in a motion to help me get the whole case dismissed. And they don't want to give it to me. So this attorney turns around and tells me, listen, I'm going to tell you something because I love you and I loved your father. He was good to me. These people are going to throw you under the bus. You need to call the government. Now, now this is from an attorney, a mob attorney. So I hang up the phone. I still couldn't make the call. I still couldn't do it. The next morning I woke up and my wife was leaving to go to work and I took the card. I took the card and I told my wife, listen, when you get to work, call this number and tell this guy to come see me. I couldn't make, I couldn't call on my own. So she left. Um, she made the call. And that afternoon, the two FBI agents came to my house and I and I and I cooperated. So that, like you said, that had to be a hard decision to make, being brought up how you were brought up by your father and being around guys like John Gotti. Um, because I'm sure John could have talked when he went in and and told some stuff to maybe make things easier on herself, easier on herself. But there wasn't no way in hell that man was going to say a damn thing. No, you know, um, it was the hardest thing I ever did, you know. Um, but, you know, I know in my heart, like right now, when I'm sitting here right now and I'm thinking about it, you know, I know in my heart, if my father was alive or Tony Lee was alive or John was alive, I there's no way I would have done it. I would have never gave any of them up. Right. That was going to be my question. My, would you I have was, done? I would have never gave my father up. Never in a million years. I would have never gave none of them up. Them three guys, they were like the holy grail to me. I would have never gave them up. So that sort of I'm a, it makes me, I, I'm okay looking in the mirror at myself because mm-hmm. I know in my heart, I would have never gave them up if they were alive. I would have went down with the ship. But they weren't alive, and the guys that were out there weren't worth it. Right. You know, they, when my father died, I'm in prison. They took everything. Mm-hmm. They took everything from my family. My mother had to get meals on wheels. Now, here's wow. Fat Andy's wife. With no, they left her with no money. They wow. took everything. I had a guy paying my son's health insurance. They told the guy to bring them the money. So they, there was no loyalty no more. There was no, you know, it wasn't like it. 
The mob wasn't the same as it was when I first came around in the early 70s. The clientele, the members, it was just a different world. And it right. wasn't, you know, and, and it just turned me off. Yeah. So, you know, don't get me wrong. Sometimes I miss being in the mob. I miss the action. I miss the money. I miss, you know, not waiting on lines. I miss sitting in the front row, you know, but that's, them days are over, you know, yeah. and uh, now I'm just content, you know, like I, you know, like I tell people, they go, what's the difference between now and then? The difference between now and then is I'm content now. Back then I was never content. It was always about more. Yep. More, the next scheme, the next robbery, the next this, the next game, you know, the next girl. It was just about, you know, more, more, more. Now it's, now I sit down and I'm content. So after you cooperated, did they try, did they put you in a program? How did that work? So when I first cooperated, they took me out of my house. They put me in a safe house for a while. Then I went to another state to live. They relocated my wife at the time and my daughter excuse me, to the state I was in. Then I went into the witness protection program on my own and I went out West and they changed my name. They gave me all my new identification. I was in that program for a little over a year and I signed myself out on good terms. And uh, I went back under the protection of the umbrella of the FBI and they moved me back where my wife and my daughter was at the time. And they supplemented my income and I was testified, testified at six trials. Okay. So when you're out of the protection of or witness protection, you know, they're not looking out for you anymore. Did you have any fear of retribution or, you know, from the well, anybody I mean, left? I don't, I don't really, it's not fear. I mean, I was careful, you know, like the right. FBI had, you know, like they, listen, they know everything. They have more informants out there running around in the streets and everybody's tapping. I mean, the, the surveillance is, is so massive. You know, so they were pretty much, you know, that they're um they were pretty much on it, like they had their finger on a lot of stuff, so they sort of knew what was going on. And I was never really in any danger. When I came into New York, I was always well protected by them. So I wasn't in fear, but I mean I was careful. I mean, you right. know, I'm still I'm careful. I mean, you know, th- are there people out there that are capable of killing me? Of course there are, but who's gonna send them? Yeah. Yeah. You make good points, man. Um because the mob, like we said earlier, is nowhere near what it was like, you know, back when you were coming up and your father was coming up. I mean, it's it's a different breed of guys altogether. The the older regime are gone. And like you said, that whole, when it was, I guess I could use the word fun. When it was fun to be a mobster, that was kind of your heyday. Nowadays, I don't think it's fun. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not fun. No, it was a lot of fun. Listen, you know, like you want to get back to good fellas like that. Like I used to get into the Copacabana through the basement, up through the kitchen, you know, like to see, you know, like that's how we got in when, you know, when there was big crowds, that's how we got in. Wow. You know, it was an exciting time. You know, I hung out with all these celebrities. I used to hang out at this club called the Ritz in the, now it's Webster Hall. It was a rock club, you know, and I sat down at the table with like Andy Warhol and all these big celebrities and drank with them and partied with them. You know, it was just an exciting time. And, you know, and then it wasn't. Yeah. No, then it wasn't. Yeah. Frank Sinatra. You dealt with Frank a little bit too. Yeah, my father was friends with my father used to drink with Frank Sinatra and Jilly's. My father was friends with De Niro because even, you know, De Niro denies being friends with him, but they were friends. There's pictures, you know, photographic proof, but he denies right. it. I don't know why, <laughs> but, uh, you know, um, yeah, my father was great friends with Frankie Valley. He was in and out of my house. He would walk in my house and Frankie Valley would be sitting there eating macaronis in my house. Jay Black, Jane, the Americans was like my father's son. Yeah. You know, I, you know, and I was around all these people, you know, all my, since I was a kid. Wow. Well, that's quite a story, man. Um, now that you're out, what have you been up to lately? You're actually, you're doing some counseling. Is that correct? Yeah. So what happened was when I got out of the witness protection program, um, a friend of mine that was in the uh, drug treatment business. He was a supervisor. He gave me a call one day and he goes, listen, I was talking to the owner of the treatment center I worked for. And I told him your story and he wants to offer you a job as a counselor. He thinks your life experience, you could help like kids, you know? Mm -hmm. So he says, but you have to go back to school. I said, I got to go back to school. Right. And he goes, he goes, yeah. He goes, listen, well, the company will pay for the school, come down, and, you know, go to work. So I, I decided to do that. I said, so I decided to do it. 
I moved to the state that the place was in. I went to work in the treatment center. I went to school to get certified as a certified addiction counselor. And I became a counselor. And I've been doing that now um, going on eight years, almost. Yeah, going on eight years. Uh, I was a behavioral health technician. I was a counselor. I was a case manager. Because I was involved in recovery since 1988 on my own. You know, I've, I've been going to Narcotics Anonymous meetings for, mm-hmm. I'm clean, 33 years. That's good. I had 33 years uh, on January 12th. So, uh, yeah, that's what I do. So I, I work in a treatment center. And, um, you know, now I'm doing all this other stuff with I'm trying to get my story out there, um, you know, see what happens. Maybe help somebody help myself along the way. So things right. are, you know, moving forward. Now, you actually run a class. Uh, it's called Mafia Masterclass. Is that correct? Right. Mafia Masterclass. Yes. Okay. So if anybody wants to go check that out, it's MafiaMasterclass.com. Right. Yeah. And they could also go on my website, AnthonyRuggiano.com. And there's a link on that too. Plus there's a lot of other information on my website, what's going on in the future, what I'm involved in. And so yeah, check out the website, AnthonyRuggiano.com. Okay. Yeah. If you guys are interested in that, you know, go take the class. I'm sure you're going to get a lot of information. You know, you're going to get some information from this episode, but I'm sure a lot more one-on-one with him. Well, before we break this down, I've got one question that I've kind of asked people throughout the years and debated. Um, and since you were in the Gambinos, you were there firsthand. When Carlo died, right, everybody or most people assumed he was going to name Neil as his successor. But he kind of surprised some people and he put Paul in there. And like we spoke earlier, he was more of a businessman. Um, do you think the mob would have been better had Neil took over? Do you think it would have been better had John stayed in line and let Paul keep running the family? Or do you think it probably worked out better with John doing what he did in the direction it went? Because I think ultimately it would have come to an end. We would be where we are now, no matter who was in charge. It's just the times, times changed. But how do you think the family would have been run better between those three guys? Uh, that's a great question. Because when, when Carl Gambino died in the seventies, my father went to his funeral, of course, mm-hmm. and everybody assumed Neil was going to become the boss because he was the underboss. Right. But Paul, Carl, before he died, he named Paul. Mm-hmm. My father and John Gotti and all of them wanted Neil to declare himself the boss. Even though Gambino named Paul as his successor, they, uh, Neil had the power and the guys with him, the killers, to just declare himself the boss. Nobody would have said any. Nobody would have bucked him. Right. He could have declared himself the boss. He didn't. He was old school, Costa yep. Nostra. The boss is the, you know, like Tony Lee used to tell me, the boss is the boss is the boss. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he respected Gambino's wishes on his deathbed to make Paul the boss. Right. So that's why Neil took a backseat. Was everybody around Neil happy? No, they all wanted Neil to be the boss. Um, I think if Neil would have became the boss, it would have been a much better situation. Moving forward, now Paul's the boss on Neil gets cancer. Mm-hmm. And he dies. While Neil was dying, Jeannie Gotti and Angel get arrested for heroin. Right. Which is a big no-no with Paul. Yeah. Paul wants the tapes. They can't give Paul the tapes because they're going to get killed. Yeah, they're going to be on him. Right. When Neil died. Recording stopped.
Oh, there you are. Yeah, when, when you finish that, we're done. Hello? Yeah, when you finish that one, I, we're done. I, I got you on my phone. Okay. Got, yeah, yeah, because my computer, I don't know what's wrong with it. Can you so, flip yeah, it so, sideways? Yeah. Yeah, there that? you go. Yeah, 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 it matches how it was before. All right. Yeah. So, moving forward. Oh, hold on. Let me hit record on here. Recording in progress. Hold on. I got to. Okay. So, moving forward. Um, so, now, uh, Neil dies of stomach cancer. Now, I'm around when all this is going on. I went to Neil's funeral, and Paul doesn't show up at Neil's funeral. Mm-hmm. So, that's like a blatant message to John, because now John's getting treated already like the boss at Neil's right. funeral. Paul don't show up at the funeral. Now, he wants the tapes. They're not going to give him the tapes. It's kill or be killed. And then, uh, you know, Paul got assassinated and John became the boss. Was John a good boss? I mean, he was good to me. I mean, was he kind of, did he put us all on kind of front street? Definitely. You know, he was, definitely wasn't old school. You know, old, you know, he was on the front cover of Time magazine. He was in all the newspapers. You know, he was like a big slip. People were asking him for his autograph. So in the long run, I mean, when I think about it now, would it have been better if O'Neill became the boss, yeah, it probably would have been. It would have been different. You know, John still may become the boss at some point, but um, it didn't work out that way. Well, I think that about wraps it up, man. Look, I've had a great time uh, going down through your story, asking some questions from uh, questions I've always wondered, but asking them from somebody that was there that knew all these guys firsthand. And uh, I hope you enjoyed it as well. I hope our listeners uh, enjoyed it. Um, like we said, mafiamasterclass.com. Go check that out. I'm sure it'll be a great time. We'll put a link to it in our, uh, on our description, on our, uh, post when we post this on the YouTube channel. Um, Anthony, we wish you nothing but the best going forward, my friend. I hope everything, uh, you know, goes well for you. I hope you get your, more of your story out there. You know, I think a, uh, a movie probably be in your, uh, lineup someday soon. Hopefully. I hope so. I hope so. I would love it. Thanks. It was a pleasure. I had a great time. Stay safe. All right. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Anthony Ruggiano Jr. I am Hollywood Wade, and unfortunately, we are out of time. Tune in next week for an all-new episode here on Crime and Entertainment. Andy, we appreciate it, my friend. All right. Take care. Well, boy, oh boy, what an interesting episode that was. Anthony Ruggiano Jr., we want to say thank you to him for stopping by the show. Now, here's what I want to get into, folks. Anthony has some points here with him being in the life. His dad was a respected guy, but when he went away, he was basically getting sailed up the river and he made the decision to cooperate with the government. This has always been a big point of emphasis with the mob. People say, well, he was going to rat on me. So I was going to rat on him. You know, that's something that it was a choice that was put upon him and he chose to make the choice that he did. So you can't knock that man for that, especially if you're not in his shoes. However, the mob was built on Omerta, a code of silence, if you will, to not rat. And, you know, had that been instilled, if they hadn't ratted on him, he wouldn't have been in position to have to rat on them. You know, a lot of this started with Joe Valachi. There's a movie about that called the Valachi papers. He was one of the first people to roll in court and kind of break down the hierarchy of the mob from the boss to the underboss to the consigliere's on down and that kind of started it and then obviously when sammy the bull got pinched uh with along with john Gotti, and he rolled on him that was kind of the domino that made everything fall if you will after that it was not an uncommon thing for people in the mob to start cooperating with the government and that essentially helped cripple the mob because for so long they were able to operate because people would keep their mouth shut like as he said in the episode his father told him going to jail was part of the fucking job that's what you realize or had to realize rather when you were in this life you are going to go to jail you're going to go to a two-year stretch in prison you're going to do a three a five a ten but you're going to get taken care of and as long as they hold up that end that was just part of what they had to understand it was going to happen every now and again you're going to have to take a pinch and they kept their mouth shut and when they got out things were you know in place for them to pick right back up where they started and when you quit abiding by that when you quit giving people what you promise them that's when they get pissed that's when they get you know well, what am i doing in here and they're out there and that starts that tumbling effect so it's all down to loyalty if you got loyalty you know you can go places if you got loyalty and trust but when you don't have those shit starts to crumble now 
There's a group of people out there that's going to say, you don't rat no matter what. There's a group of people out there that's going to say, fuck that, I'm saving my own ass. That is going to be a personal opinion. I know which way I would go, but, you know, I'm not in those kind of situations either. So you don't know what you're going to do until you're in that situation. That's one thing I've learned in my life through personal experiences. You don't know what you're going to do. You don't know what you're capable of until you're put in that situation. But the reason why I bring that up is because I have a T-shirt that's gotten a lot of feedback when I post pictures of it online on our social medias, and it's called Stop Glorifying Rats. Now, what we want to do is we're going to add that to our crime and entertainment merch line. So if you want to get one of those shirts, go on over to Facebook, send us a message, go on over to Instagram, send us a message. Hell, if you know me personally, message me. I'm on Facebook as well. We can get you that shirt, folks. We're going to add it to our crime and entertainment merch line along with a few other things. So be on the lookout for that. We're hoping the full website will be launched so you can see all of our products and apparel Come around March the 1st, but for the time being, if you want to go ahead and pick you up a Stop Glorifying Rats t-shirt, head on over there, let us know. We will get you hooked up at a very, very good price. And these aren't just average cheap shit for shirts, folks. These, these aren't just average cheap shirts, folks. These are top-of-the-line Bella canvas quality that really makes the colors and things pop on there. So not your average shirt not that cheap gilding shit we're going top of the line here we're not going to give you any bullshit if you're giving us your money we're going to give you back a good product in return so that's what we're going to do and speaking of giving we want to give all you guys a thanks for making our youtube numbers soar up our subscribers are soaring our downloads are soaring all thanks to you guys. Now, we are on all the social media networks, as I mentioned earlier. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on TikTok. Uh, obviously, like I mentioned, the YouTube channel. And we're also on all of the audio apps. We're on Spotify. A lot of you say, well, I don't have a Spotify account. You know, we're on Apple Music. Well, I don't have an Apple Music account. That's fine. We're covered also the Stitcher app. The Stitcher is an audio, a podcast audio app. You do not need a subscription for it. We are on there, and you can go and get all of our back episodes all the way up to this one right here from the first one, Boys on the Tracks, all the way to this one right here, and everything in between, full 100% back catalog free, folks. You do not need a subscription for it. You know, I understand some people weary about getting subscriptions, and they never let you out. That one's absolutely free, the Stitcher app. And not just our podcast, a million other podcasts are on there for you to enjoy after you listen to ours, of course. <laughs> so we want to thank you for stopping by here today. We hope you enjoyed that episode with Anthony Ruggiero Jr. I am Hollywood Wade, and this is Crime and Entertainment. Tune us hit to the fuck. I am Hollywood Wade, and this was Crime and Entertainment's latest fuck. I am Hollywood Wade, and I want to thank you for tuning in to Crime and Entertainment. Tune in. Folks, I am Hollywood Wade, and please tune in next week for an all-new episode of Crime and Entertainment. Crime and Entertainment.